Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's conference call, What are the Energy Implications of Brexit? At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. The information and views conveyed by energy intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. Please note this call is being recorded. It is now my pleasure to turn today's program over to News Editor for Energy Intelligence, Alex Schindler. Please go ahead. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to our July virtual roundtable. Uh, as you heard and as you know, our the title of our um, virtual roundtable this month is what are the energy implications of Brexit? Um, I think it's fair to say that um, almost all uh, institutions and people were were, uh, relatively unprepared for the outcome of the UK deciding to uh, vote to leave the European Union. And our goal today is to try to answer some of those questions about what's going to happen next, and in particular, how it's going to impact the energy industry. Uh, today, we've assembled a, a very um, knowledgeable panel um, for you all to uh, listen to and hopefully ask questions to later on. Uh, we have Alex Martinos. Uh, he's a senior analyst for research and advisory here in London. Uh, we have Jaime Concha, senior European natural gas reporter, also here in London. And John Van Shake, who's a team leader of oil markets and the New York bureau chief uh, over in New York, obviously. Um, so what we'll do, we're going to take, uh, we're going to start with about uh, a number of questions that uh, I'm going to put to our, our various panel, and then uh, hopefully we'll turn it over to the audience for some questions in about uh, 25 minutes. But uh, with that, I, I think you know the the right place to start is trying to set the scene uh, about where we are. Obviously, this issue has dominated the headlines for the last number of weeks. Uh, so I, I'm going to start with uh, Alex Martinos and um, Alex. So now that we have a government uh, in the UK, um, how is this Brexit pr- process likely to play out in, in the next weeks and months? Thanks very much, Alex. Um, as you said, uh, the UK does now have a new government, a uh, new Prime Minister, Theresa May. So. Uh, We can start to say that after the initial shock that caught a lot of people by surprise, uh, the dust is starting to settle a little bit. We are able to see at least something of the contours of uh, what is to come, uh, but still with a great deal of uncertainty uh, to be resolved. In terms of the complex picture of uh, the political outlook uh, for this process from the UK, I think what we can say is, you know, the new government on the one hand has put uh, proponents of uh, the UK leaving the EU in very prominent positions. Um, uh, David Davis in charge of the Brexit process, uh, Boris Johnson uh, as a foreign secretary, Liam Fox in charge of uh, international trade agreements. Uh, He has stated very clearly a commitment to Brexit. That's what Theresa May has said. Um, and it's worth noting it faces at the moment a very weak opposition in Parliament, which means it's in a position to proceed reasonably unopposed. You know, but on the other hand, it's worth remembering that Theresa May herself and her uh, likely-to-be-influential Chancellor of the Exchequer, responsible for finance and the economy, uh, Philip Hammond, uh, were on the Remain side, anti-Brexit side, 
in the campaign so far, and their government as a whole does have a slim majority in Parliament. So that uh, may certainly temper moves forward. Uh, and we're seeing already that caution is, is likely to be uh, the nature of the approach. Whilst we do know who the government is, what we still don't know is what exactly they want to achieve, what they see uh, the UK's departure from the EU and its new relationships looking like. We don't really know the timetable for this in detail yet. Uh, people have talked about the two-year period indicated by uh, Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. Um, that hasn't yet been triggered, and the current thinking is that that may not be triggered until the beginning of next year. Um, and we don't really know the trajectory which talks will take within that time period, you know, whether they will be straightforward and amicable or whether they will be uh, hostile and with a great deal of uh, brinkmanship um, involved. So it's worth really stressing these key points. This is an ongoing process. It will last over several years, and there will be considerable uncertainties in it. And you know, those uncertainties stem from the fact that they're inherent underlying tensions which will come up within the British government, within the cabinet itself, between people with different perspectives, within the British Parliament, uh, between the UK uh, government in London, the Scottish government in Edinburgh, between uh, the UK and its European partners, and even within those uh, 27 remaining states, member states. All of those tensions and difficulties will uh, contribute to the overall uncertainty of this process and that you know, will have significant impacts uh, across a wide range of areas uh, and across the energy sector as well. Okay, right. So Brexit means Brexit, even though we've got a Remain Prime Minister in there who will back to Remain, but we also have a lot of uncertainty in the meantime. But so where, where are we going with this? I mean, we don't know exactly how it's all going to shake out, but what are the possibilities? How, how could a UK outside the EU look um, after this whole thing is resolved? Well, I think the way people tend to think about this is in terms of the existing models for countries that have close relationships with the EU but are not member states. So you hear a lot about that. They point to the kind of relationships that are possible, and they indicate the kind of breadth of the spectrum of options that are out there. So people will talk about, and many of you listening will have heard about reference to a Norwegian model, uh, whereby Norway is a member of the European Economic Area, the EEA, it is in effect uh, trades uh, inside the single market uh, on most areas. Uh, it accepts EU law in most areas. Um, there is free movement of labor between the EU and Norway, um, and it contributes to the EU budget. You know, and then if we move across the spectrum, there are various other examples you would have heard reference to. Um, so, for example, Canada, obviously in no way a member um, or closely affiliated, but does have a free trade agreement negotiated with the EU. Um, there's also the possibility at the very far end of the spectrum that uh, uh, the UK will reach the end of a negotiating period, exit the EU with no formal new agreement uh, on a new relationship, and would then trade um, with the EU under WTO rules. Um, I think it's worth emphasizing, though, that the UK's position is effectively unprecedented. Uh, all of those examples, you know, Switzerland, Norway, and others, are countries outside uh, who have taken steps to um, associate more closely with the EU without uh, becoming members. The UK is obviously inside, has a lot of complex relationships with the EU already, and needs to work, about, uh, work on how to unpick those. So what we're likely to see is the development of a new British model, 
and where exactly that ends up on this spectrum is ultimately the main issue. You know, when I mentioned all these areas of tension that we're likely to see arguments over, do we want to maintain that relationship, or does Europe want to give the UK access to those industry areas? You know, what will the price be for the UK? And in political terms, does the British government want to accept it? All of those tensions uh, lie in the uh, process of trying to decide on what this new model will look like. Okay, great. Thanks, Alex. Um, I want to turn to John now in New York and, and touch on the sort of oil market impact here. I mean, Alex sort of outlined what, how this process likely will play out sort of from a, a structural point of view and sort of from a political point of view. But, but John, what's going to be the impact on oil markets of this process? I mean, with, with, uh, Alex just sort of looked at a very sort of UK, Europe focused um, set of uh, outcomes, but I mean, from the oil markets, uh, from a global perspective, how is this likely to play out? Well, short term, <coughs> it's it's quite visible um, already. The, what you see happening is is Brexit, of course, impacting negatively uh, macroeconomic sentiment. Uh, that has added quite a bit of, of volatility uh, to uh, to the oil price. Um, basically, what you've seen is that Brexit, remember June 23 was the vote, um, that, that wiped out the optimism and, and support that was kind of seeping into the market um, uh, from the rebalancing process. Everybody was looking at the, at the re rebalancing process finally kind of starting to take hold. And, and basically what you saw happening is that overnight after the Brexit vote, you know, we, we thought we had kind of established a $50 floor uh, for, the open, for, for the oil market. And you could argue that floor overnight became actually uh, actually a ceiling, and our trading range started dropping below $50 again. So, so what you see is, is market sentiment. Brexit sentiment is, is determining uh, the oil price less so the fundamentals, I would argue. Uh, you've seen a flight to, to, to the dollar, of course. Stronger dollars negative for the oil price. Uh, so in a way, it's kind of ironic to see fundamentals taking a backseat just as we kind of were ending our <clears throat> two-year surplus period. Um, Longer-term Brexit, I, I don't see there will be much of an impact. Uh, you, of course, as, as uh, Alex pointed out, we have the legal uncertainty. Uh, you, you tear up a, a, a rule book, uh, but you don't know what's coming back in, in its place. And, <clears throat> you know, for, for the oil market, of course, that can, over time, have serious consequences. Uh, for Brent as a benchmark, for London as a trading, a trading hub, but you know, from a fundamental perspective, um, you could argue that that Brexit will have limited impact, um, not much on demand, not much on supply. Uh, so you could argue, you know, over time, when the market starts focusing again on fundamentals and, and, and less on macro sentiment, then you would see fundamentals being supportive of the price again and Brexit taking a backseat. That would be my my scenario there. Okay, and, and what if this triggers a massive recession globally? Obviously, that would have an impact, wouldn't it? <clears throat> yeah, but that obviously, and that and that would be a major black swan uh, in in a way. Um, <clears throat> you know, you could argue if if uh, the UK is 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 flipping into recession. We we had the IMF come out uh, just the other day, um, down downgrading its uh, revising downwards its its uh, growth numbers. Um, if you if you have the UK if you have Europe trading less trading less with China 
trading less with the rest of the world, that can have a negative impact. And, you know, in this uncertain uh, sentiment, you, you don't need a lot to kind of freeze up a system and, and, and make it um, <clears throat> slide backwards. So uh, it's very uncertain, and, 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 and uh, it's something to look out for. Okay. Well, I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned, this impact on Brent as a benchmark. Uh, what could be the impact on that from Brexit? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> you know, obviously, Brent is, is a very well-established, uh, you know, benchmark. It's, in fact, the global benchmark. It, you know, we, we trade our oil against, uh, we price our oil against Brent to trade it. Uh, against that price, you know, so it will, for any any change, it will take time, but, uh, and, and you've seen, uh, you know, just recently, Platts again, Platts, the pricing company taking proactive measures to make sure that there's enough volume in <clears throat> in Brent, so, so the physical uh, volume seems to be taken care of, but, you know, having said that, you could argue that there are serious challenges uh, facing Brent as a benchmark, you know, it's only a few years that Brent basically became, you know, your your electronic market benchmark, so to speak. Uh, came, but it, it moved out of the shadow of, of NYMEX uh, just in 2012, I think. Yes, when when Brent overtook um, NYMEX in in, in volumes, um, and and even before Brexit, you've seen. Uh, the NYMEX picking up volumes again, taking away some market share from the ice brand market. Um, you know, volumes again in 15, 2015, 16, higher on the NYMEX than on ice. So, you know, you, you can expect that trend to continue, I would think, uh, when there is doubt over your legal environment. Okay. And, you know, another thing that's come up in this whole debate, at least when we're talking about energy, is that, of course, the UK may lose its sort of access to the single market and that uh, also they would, uh, London as a financial center would be impacted by its inability to sort of be part of this sort of European Union financial system. And and then, you know, what is the knock-on impact on, uh, you know, London as a trading hub, uh, London as a hub where uh, a lot of sort of the oil industry does its business um, you know, what, what do you think might happen on that front, John? Yeah, you know, it's it's basically the same as with rent as a benchmark. You know, it's 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 very established. It's not going to go away overnight. Uh, London as a as a key oil trading hub is not going to be dismantled overnight. But you know, having said that, um, if if you add a lot of uncertainty to to trading in London, um, you add uh, a lot of cost. To trading because you start adding rules, changing rules, um, you start changing your your uh, legal environment. Um, so from that cost perspective, you could argue it becomes less attractive to trade in London. Um, and for for you looking for an alternative, I, I can recommend Amsterdam. I live there. It's a it's a it's a beautiful city. Um, there is of course the, the the legal aspect that traders look at. Um, you want to be clearing deals uh, in, in an environment that's not ambiguous. If London is, is going to change the rules, it will be an ambiguous environment. Uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I remember one, one big law firm coming out with a report shortly after the Brexit vote and, say, and saying, like, 
you know, we, we don't know what Brexit's uh, shape is, is, is going to be, but it's, it's going to have a significant impact on the legal rights and obligations of commercial parties. And, and, and that's exactly what's going to happen. So if you have that uncertainty, there are two big major clearing uh, uh, centers in the world for oil. Uh, one is in London, the other one is in Chicago. If London becomes more difficult, you start to look elsewhere. So, what about you Switzerland? Know, uh, I mean, for example, sorry? I mean, that, what about Switzerland? I mean, they're, they're, they, uh, of course, have a fair amount of oil trade that happens <laughs> there. What, would, would that benefit potentially? Would people go there, or the reasons why? Yeah, right. Would... Yeah. So, 15 years ago, when when you, you saw kind of a similar situation for the physical traders, uh, basically, what you know, in, in consultant speak, you know, the taxation uh, became became higher. So, you start adding costs, you start adding barriers. Uh, people start moving to a to a cost and and uh, legal environment that's better, and you saw a lot of traders move to Geneva, Switzerland, um, as a result of that. Now, you could see similarly over time. That was a relatively gradual move. You know, it took a couple of years. Uh, you can see the same thing happen with the the, the traders, the back offices for the electronic trade. Uh, you know, again, the, 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 you need to be in a legal environment where you can clear, where you know, where, where you know what the rights and, and obligations of your counterparty are. And, and if London is not the place, you have to go elsewhere. Okay, thanks, John. I think we should turn to the gas market now, and Jaime covers that very closely. Um, so I, I'll ask a similar question as I asked for the benchmark of, uh, of oil, uh, of Brent. Um, Jaime, what do you think is going to be the impact on the UK's national balancing point uh, from Brexit? Is it going to be similar to what John's talking about, or will, will there be some uh, differences there? Well, thanks, Alex. Well, there, there are some common, common areas uh, with oil, but well, with the European gas market, we have to take three major things into account. The first thing that we need to think about is that gas trading is a very regional, uh, it's very regional. It's divided into very regional markets, and this is due to the fact of the way that, that, uh, that, uh, that gas is transported. It's transported by pipelines. These pipelines have interconnections, certain regions are more interconnected than others. The UK is one, Southern Europe is one. Now it's a bit more inter interconnected, but these differentiations still exist. LNG is changing this, uh, but there's, uh, it, it's making it a more global market for gas. However, there's still some way to go. Uh, another thing to take into account in this whole discussion is maybe the most direct effect that Brexit has had in the economic market, which is currency. Uh, the currency risk the different, uh, uh, is quite important in this discussion. Uh, and in the European gas market, it's these currency disparities that will take precedence. So, for example, the UK MBP is priced in pounds sterling. The Dutch TTF, the biggest hub in, uh, in continental Europe, is priced in euros and LNG is priced in dollars. This will play a major factor in the future for, for European gas and how the MVP progresses. And the third is regulations, or put it, put it in another way, 
where, in what direction does the UK go to in relation to Europe? That is, will the UK will UK law follow European uh, legislation or not? This is particularly important with one specific uh, regulation called the Markets in Financial Instruments Directive. You may know it as MIFID, specifically MIFID II, which is going to come into uh, a, 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 into law in in 2018. This regulation mainly affects derivative trading in Europe uh, and commodity traders are not exempt are not fully exempt from this so basically what this does is that it, it limits derivative trading unless it directly influences your operations so for example utilities which need uh, to uh, trade uh, or hedge in a specific way in, in order to uh, close their books or uh, sort out their books, they, they, they should be fine, but hedge funds and other uh, type of organizations are not. So this brings up the question, will it be more difficult to clear if the UK does not follow this? Uh, these all, all are questions that are up in the air. Now, how will this affect the MVP if these factors are taken into account? One of the things that might, and the, MB, and the MBP, that is the UK, does not follow either European legislation or European uh, just trends uh, in, in the, the most general sense, this might affect its liquidity, its trading liquidity. What this will do is that it, this might accelerate uh, a current trend that has been happening in recent years where the Dutch TTS, the Title Transfer Facility Hub, uh, has been catching up with the MVP uh, quite quite rapidly. The, the MVP is uh, historically uh, the first in its kind, and it has uh, attracted much liquidity uh, there. But now the TTF is growing in, in, in stature, let's say, because of the interconnections with the European uh, continental fold. Now, will this push this trend further? Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, questions surrounding that, especially because European traders prefer to sidestep the currency risk and trade in euros. Uh, another effect that this might have is that uh, because, because of this liquidity issue, uh, if the Dutch TTF gathers pace and is the more liquid hub, this might push LNG traders to to price their their cargos with the TTF. Right now, it's pretty much split between the MVP and the TTF. But if the TTF gathers gathers the liquidity momentum in Europe, then uh, the MVP might be left behind. Now, a, a third point is that if the rift is is created and it is quite significant, then the way that these two hubs, the way that traders see these two hubs might change. The MBP, if it does not follow the MIFID directive that I mentioned before, it might, it might become more of a, let's say, financial instrument trading platform where European traders might still use it as a speculative hub, whereas European traders or hedge funds or uh, banks or wh whichever organization deals with commodities might use the TTF under these more strict rules, these more strict European rules, as a more uh, just for their 
day-to-day -day physical hedging purposes. So these are things to take into account. Now, who might win, who might lose from these from this general scenario? It's it's very difficult to say. Uh, like a Colombian football manager said once, losing is winning a bit. Uh, and there are a lot of factors to, to consider. The UK has a lot of freedom to, to move now, uh, so to speak. They can do whatever they want to a certain extent. That's a plus. However, will Brexit affect investments in gas infrastructure, which might uh, prove a problem in the future for the way that gas is traded and the gas is actually transported in the UK. Nobody knows. For example, as we saw very recently, uh, the rough storage facility is having a lot of issues and it's down until 2017. And it's, this is because it's an aging facility. Now, will the UK or foreign investors be willing to put in money to, to develop this in the future? A big question. Um, and uh, a final thing to think about is costs. Will energy costs be driven up by all of this uncertainty? Thanks, Jaime. That, that's uh, quite comprehensive. So, so you, you like John, are pushing Amsterdam as a, as a big winner here. Uh, you're also bringing, showing your true colors as a Colombian uh, by bringing up football sayings as well. Um, I, on a more sort of uh, upstream side of things, um, what um, possibly uh, what one outcome of of the new government could be the sort of push for more energy independence uh, for the UK? Um, do you think you know this could have some impact on the way the UK um, tries to source its gas, potentially on sort of UK uh, shale exploration? Well. You could say so to a certain extent. There are some encouraging factors to say that the UK is looking more internally for its, uh, for its energy to encourage domestic production. For example, a stronger dollar uh, would be bad for UK energy imports. This would prove a very strong argument for companies to develop domestic resources. Another factor is that the current prime minister in one of her first speeches said, and I quote, I want to see an energy policy that emphasizes the reliance of supply and lower cost for users. A lot of people have, uh, have thought that this means shale. Uh, and another thing is that, uh, is that what she means? Or uh, well, it could, it, it, it's, it more than likely means it, uh, in a in a certain in a certain way, especially if you take into account that uh, that domestic policy is trying to accommodate shale in a certain extent. So, for example, uh, the rules are changing for the way that uh, planning applications are approved, where instead of uh, the powers being taken away from the local level, which has been the major obstacle for uh, the development of shale, and put into the hands of a higher level government minister, the communities minister, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So that would imply that uh, the ground is being set for shale. However, uh, there is the bigger question about, do we need this? Do we need shale? Does the UK need shale? Uh, those, that question is not answered easily because 
there is a lot of unused LNG capacity. There are terminals that are not used at, uh, uh, almost at all, um, uh, and we are looking at an oversupply of LNG for the next decade or so. So if there is so much resource in abundance around the world, which will drive prices down, why not uh, take advantage of this as well? There are enough interconnections uh, in order to import piped gas as well, and there are many countries that are not, uh, let's say, uh, that are allies with, with the UK, like Norway. Most of the gas that comes into the UK comes from Norway. So taking all of these, into, uh, these factors into account and thinking that uh, the continent as a whole, not, not even including the UK, but the continent as a whole is improving in energy efficiency and gas is becoming a smaller part of the, of the big energy pie, let's say, if you want to call it like that, then do we really need more domestic shale? Uh, I, I wouldn't think so. Okay, and just very quickly to add to that, I mean, the previous government of the last five or six years from central government in the UK has been very supportive of the idea of shale gas uh, exploration and development, and progress so far has been limited because of the kind of uh, issues that Jaime mentioned. So it will be interesting to see whether a new government is prepared to push harder from the centre to get this past local uh, opposition. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, I think at this point um, I'd like to sort of open it up to see if there's any questions from the audience. Uh, operator, can you come back and give the instructions on how to do that? Certainly at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We'll take our first question from Pamela Tedarenko. Your line is open. Oh, hi there. I agree. Amsterdam is a beautiful city, and I also do cheer for James Rodriguez, so I'm familiar with Colombian football. Given that there's a really complex set of negotiations ahead for the next two, maybe even three years, is it at all possible that one outcome could still end up being that Britain does another referendum and decides to stay? Thanks, Pamela. We were just talking about that before we, we jumped on. We, we, we called that one of our uh, sort of black swan situations. But I'll, mm -hmm. I'll throw this to Alex Martinos to, to weigh in on that. Yeah, thanks. I, I think that's a, a, a great question and not an uh, outlandish possibility. Uh, you know, the reality is that with the range and uh, difficulty and complexity of, of what is due to come up, it is almost fair to say, I can almost say it's unlikely that the current government will make it to when the next election is due in 2020 without facing some kind of pretty severe crisis, because sooner or later, some of those kind of tensions which I mentioned, whether it's in terms of the relationship with Scotland or uh, a disagreement within the government over something like how hard to push on freedom of movement to, of people and limiting immigration, uh, or on another area, you know, safeguarding uh, the City of London and the kind of issues relating to financial legislation that I mentioned. Sooner or later, one of these issues will come to a crunch, and it is likely, though not certain, to precipitate you know, a further real uh, political difficulty here. At that point, we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, it may be that a government will be strong enough to push ahead. There may be another election which will empower a government to push ahead. Um, uh, 
uh, and you know the possibility you've raised is not impossible. I would say at the moment the uh, uh, the sheer number of people who did vote uh, for the UK to leave, although the scale of the majority was uh, pretty narrow, you know there was a large number of people who voted for that. More than the number who have voted, uh, 17 million is more than the number who voted for any uh, uh, single British government in, in in British political history. Uh, and therefore, that represents a significant obstacle for anyone who wants to reverse this for now. So it would take time, and it would take, a, in effect, a change in public sentiment that would have to come through either a general election or another referendum. But it's not impossible. There's also a bit of election fatigue, uh, to be honest. So that, that could also factor in. You have to consider that the UK has gone through a Scottish referendum, a general election, and... A, what you could call the most divisive uh, political uh, democratic decision that has taken place in the in the po in post-war Britain, uh, I think, and this is 2014, 2015, and 2016. I think the population might be a bit, uh, yeah, fatigued. So that might uh, might be a factor. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Do you have further questions? And as a reminder, if you would like to ask a, a question today, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. We'll pause for a moment to allow further questions to queue. Okay. Well, while we're waiting uh, for anyone else to uh, ask or to get in the queue, um, we have a question that came in from the audience, uh, and it was, the UK downstream refining sector has been in decline as operators either closed their refineries or converted them to terminally, terminaling operations over the last five years. How will Brexit affect this trend? I think I'll throw this to John. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's it's kind of ironic to see, um, you know, the, the, the UK showed basically Europe how to restructure uh, the refinery sector. Uh, by saying, you know, you have to be commercial and you, not, you do not have to be nationalistic. You can trade. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, since 2008, uh, if you add it all up, it's around 1 million barrels a day of capacity that was closed in. And, and now you see actually the UK uh, doing its own little nationalistic dance. Um, and the question then becomes, does Brexit uh, trigger a nationalistic dance in Europe? Um, if, if Europe continues to be semi-commercial, you would expect with demand coming down gradually over time uh, to see more uh, refining capacity close in Europe. Um, so in, in that sense, uh, Brexit might, might speed it up a little bit, but um, um, uh, unless some countries become you know, very protectionist and nationalistic. And, and do you see that happening, John? Do you see a sort of nationalist uh, backlash uh, kind of emerging, right? not only in the refining sector, but in general? It's certainly possible. Um, you know, if you look at the populist movements in, in Europe, and even here on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, I might <coughs> point out that, that you see a similar wind. Um, people are, are quite, you know, uh, fed up with the way governments have, have treated them over, over the years. Um, that's that's a, um, a very hard to predict uh, national movement. Uh, that's that's uh, you know blowing ac across the continent. 
Um, and what that would mean for for governments basically is, is of course, you know, uh, shut the borders, become more nationalistic, uh, and and for uh, they they will still need the oil, so they will still, uh, you know, continue to have uh, uh, sufficient trade to 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 meet domestic demand. But everything just simply becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, and on the refining side, as I said, it can mean that you keep refineries open that are actually not really commercially viable. Just because you want to be, uh, you want to have security of domestic supply. Right. Okay. Uh, do we have any further questions in the queue? I'm showing we have no further questions at this time. Okay. I, I have a, I have uh, one or two more, and then then we, then we'll wrap it up. Um, the one thing we didn't touch on is uh, the issue of climate policies, and the UK has taken a fairly uh, well, has taken a leadership role in the European Union in. Uh, pushing through some of the climate policies that have been adopted by the EU, but it, it has been raised that there is potentially um, could be some changes in the way that uh, a independent or, or UK out of the EU will behave. Um, I'll, I'll throw this to Alex. Um, what do you think might be some changes on the climate side that we should be aware of? Well, let me give you, if you like, one side of the argument in response to what's happened in in the last month or so, and that is the perspective that. Uh, you know, uh, climate change has been uh, deprioritized by uh, the UK government. Uh, the Department of Energy and Climate Change uh, has been dismantled, uh, merged with another uh, government department. Uh, the words climate change have disappeared from the title. Some people have pointed to that as a suggestion that it's a lower priority. Um, others have noted that uh, a lot of the leading politicians who were making the case against the EU, known here as you know, Eurosceptic uh, politicians, have expressed similar scepticism on uh, climate change issues and climate science as well. So there is a sense that perhaps this uh, uh, group of people, typically at the right wing of the governing Conservative Party, are in the ascendancy, and that might have an impact both in the UK, but also uh, you know, uh, emphasizing that the EU, uh, as Alex mentioned, the UK had played a leading role on uh, and had a strong voice, uh, certainly in the last decade, on climate policy there, and that that might be lost. So that's one side of the argument that's being presented. But I don't know, Jaime, maybe you want to... Yeah, yeah, well, the other side of the argument is is something that I'm mentioned in passing that now the UK has a bit more freedom to to roam and uh, the more extreme uh, uh, version of that argument is that the European Union was dragging dragging the UK down with with uh, in, in regards to to climate but uh, and, and it has to be said that the UK has been at the forefront uh, of climate policy in Europe uh, still within the European Union, it has implemented a quite a strong carb, uh, carbon floor, which has de decentivized the use of coal in favor of gas in power generation. Uh, it, it's it's always it for, for some time it's had quite strong uh, climate targets, uh, and if if may, maybe the most recent uh, evidence of of the UK's commitment, uh, despite the the wrapping up of the or, or the scrapping of this 
uh, uh, climate change uh, department is that uh, only last week or, or maybe the, the, the week previous to that, uh, the UK has ratified its fifth carbon budget, which basically says to the world, no, we're still on the right track with, uh, with climate. Now, the difficulty that this brings is that the UK will now have to ratify the Paris Agreement by itself outside of the European Union. Uh, which it has not given any evidence that it won't do. So that's, that's quite a good thing, uh, which means that it will give, that, that there is no reason that, that, that it won't match its commitments to, to, to the Paris agreements. If anything that it, 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 that it would have a direct effect on is actually on Europe. Without the UK in the mix, its climate targets out to 2020, 2030 will change because Again, the UK is relatively cleaner than other countries, for example, Poland, which is quite reliant on coal. So it, without a quote-unquote cleaner country, uh, the, 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 the European Union would have to, a 27-member European Union would have to reshuffle its targets to, or its, its commitments in order for, for the goal of, of carbon emissions to be actually uh, kept so you know it's it's kind of quite balanced it balances out despite the fact that there is the long, maybe the long term danger of the most extreme political views maybe taking taking hold yeah i mean I, I think that you know my my last question to sort of and then we're going to wrap it up um, maybe we can go uh, have everyone sort of throw in, uh, you know, 30 seconds to a minute of, of what they see on this. But Jaime is sort of touching on one of these important points. You know, we've got a, a pretty big uh, sea change in what's going on here, and the mainstream is, is the one that's being thrown out of office now, and the and, and the rebels are sort of, uh, you know, ascending to a certain extent, and that means some real doubts are being raised about things that people thought was kind of enshrined in uh, in law, like climate policy. You have kind of climate skeptics, uh, both in the U.S., but also in Europe, you know, may start to get a louder voice. So so if we talk about black swans, uh, Jaime, you know, what could be the impact of having some um, climate skeptics kind of showing up and, and sort of changing the whole equation here? Well, the, the thing is, it, it is quite, it, it is worrying, uh, Maybe not as I, as I was maybe maybe implying before that in the short term it won't be a problem. A lot of this is in, enshrined in, in in legislation. However, these climate skeptics are of, don't like, for example, for example, the the um, uh, uh, the already existing European legislation that would discourage coal coal burn, for example. They believe they because of their um, basically non-interventionist views. So if if this holds and this kind of uh, so basically they were a minority and right now they are given much more of a of a of a mouthpiece in order to give their views. That that I, I believe is more of a uh, of a of a worry. However, in the most extreme case that Brexit happens, and in the most extreme effect of it happening, let's say a recession, if a recession happens, for example, and 
uh, all of these climate policies, which are expensive, we have to say, uh, are have to be implemented because of, let's say, the the, the current climate of of being more pro climate and being uh, being more stronger against uh, carbon carbon emissions and so on. And we have these elements in the political mainstream saying, uh, well, these aren't effective means, this doesn't exist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This might actually push the the this the political discourse into a more economic economical um, belt tightening mood, which would actually play into their hands, into their climate skeptic hands. So that's kind of my vision of the future. What may worry me uh, in a couple of years when the 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 vision of whether a recession will happen or not is is made clear right now. I'm quite happy that uh, that this pro-climate sentiment is at least going to be uh, extended for, for, for several years, but the future is, is another question. Okay. Well, Alex, you got 30 seconds. What, what's, your, what's your black swan? Um, it might be worth mentioning, because we've not said much about it, uh, Scotland, um, the uh, independence issue, which was thought to be cleared up by the 2014 referendum, uh, is now seen as being back on the table. That's what the Scottish nationalists uh, have been saying. They're in a powerful position in both Edinburgh and Westminster parliaments. I think for now they will use the threat of a second referendum uh, as a stick to beat the Theresa May's government uh, as they uh, attempt to start their Brexit negotiations. But uh, we shouldn't rule out that as a as a possibility to really flare up in the next couple of years again. Okay, good. John, you got 15 seconds. What's your black swan? It's not necessarily a black swan. It's just being very cynical about, cynical about, uh, about politics. Um, <clears throat> if, you, if you have a narrow majority um, voting for Brexit, then what you do as a government, you negotiate a deal that very much looks like the status quo and call it Brexit. Yeah. No, I, and I think that kind of gets at uh, a bit of what uh, Pamela had asked before about whether maybe nothing happens at all, but, um, but good point. Okay, with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you, everyone, uh, for dialing in, and, uh, and we'll see you again next month.